Thank you, Father, for song that gives us a common voice to sing together an uncommon message. The world is filled with song. We won't have to go far when we leave this room today to find songs that are attempting to fill men's hearts with joy. And they will all fail except your songs. Here's truth. Here's joy. Here's satisfaction. Here's provision. And we thank you for the privilege of singing together this day. And we thank you, Father, for the promise, the expectation that we will sing together in glory for all eternity. And our common refrain will be about you, the King of heaven, the Lord of all. We've been speaking of sanctification and holiness these last weeks. Would you give us one more vision of you that would compel us to move towards the holiness you have provided for us by which we emulate you? Would you guide us in understanding this passage that is so familiar to us? And we ask that in your kindness, you would transform us today. We need change. We want change. Would you be pleased to change us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Early in his ministry, the famed preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a church he pastored for decades and which has a great testimony for Christ, was invited to, te- to preach at chapel at Princeton Seminary from which he had graduated a few years earlier. One of the school's most distinguished professors, a Dr. Robert Dick Wilson, was seated in the front row as Barnhouse preached. He was somewhat intimidated by his professor and he preached with some measure of nervousness and wondering how his mentor would respond to the message. After the service, Wilson shook Barnhouse's hand and declared, If you ever come back to preach in this chapel again, I will not come to hear you. Barnhouse was crestfallen. What had he done? What had he said that would keep this mentor, this man he revered and and was so thankful for, from coming back to hear him preach again? He was crushed. And so timidly he asked Wilson, What did I do? How did, how did I fail? Fail! Wilson responded, Oh, you didn't fail. I only come to hear a former student one time. I only want to know if he is a big godder or a little godder. And then I know how his ministry will be. Some men have a little god. And they will always be in trouble with him. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God and I call them little Godders. There are others who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You are a big Godder 
and God will bless your ministry. In contrast, today, I believe we have among us many people who have a little God, are little Godders, and are unafraid of God. Specifically, they are not afraid of His wrath. They are not afraid of His power. They are not afraid of His judgment, either temporal or eternal. I've had more, more than one conversation when I've talked to someone about his salvation or his seemingly lack of salvation, and he has said to me in response to my queries, I guess God will just have to send me to hell, as if it's a three-day trip to jail, a minor inconvenience on his schedule. We are not afraid of him and his wrath because we are content with our own standard of righteousness and we are ignorant of his possession of his infinite holiness. In other words, we are big and he is small. And this, my friends, was the precarious position of the nation of Israel. In the year 740 B.C., Assyria was making itself known, was beginning to pressure the nation of Israel and it would result about 20 years later in the ten northern tribes being taken into captivity into Syria in the year 721 B.C. Isaiah was writing and speaking to awaken the nation from their spiritual slumber and their coldness to God. They were facing condemnation for their rebellion, for their rejection of God, for their disobedience, for their sin. We capture a sense of this even from the first chapter of the book. Verse 4, chapter 1, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 5, Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Chapter 5, verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in drinking and mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. First five chapters just filled with it. It's the nation that's walking away from God. They're spiritually asleep. They don't care. They're rebellious against Him. What they needed was a clear vision of God. And Isaiah gave them just that in chapter 6. We have been thinking about our call to righteousness and sanctification and holiness in Romans chapter 13. And it seems to me that we will benefit from an understanding of God's holiness from this book as a stimulant to our own holiness If we were to summarize what Isaiah says in these opening verses of chapter 6, we might say it this way. The man of God, the person of God, the sanctified person must have a God-sized understanding of and devotion to God's holiness. If you want to be a man of God, 
You've got to have a God-sized perception and pursuit of God's holiness. Isaiah will give us four perspectives of holiness in this passage to transform our lives and our hearts. How do we grow in holiness? He will give us four perspectives of God's holiness that serve to transform us. We're going to spend most of our time in the first of these. Number one, a vision of God's holiness. What is God like? What is God's holiness like? This chapter stands in stark contrast to everything that has just preceded, as we've already noted. The first chapters are full of darkness and sin, and this chapter is full of the hope of God's glory and holiness. And here we will find five perspectives of God's holiness in these opening verses of chapter 6. First of all, God is alive. God is alive. Notice how he begins. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, I've read a lot of commentaries on Isaiah, and I've gone through all the arguments about when it was that Uzziah died. There's a lot of debate about the particular year of his death. Was it 740? Was it 739? Was it 741? And when Isaiah said this, does he, is he writing this as a prophecy? Uh, I, I'm speaking this in the year that Uzziah will die, or was he writing in response to the fact that Uzziah has already died? Well, that's not the point. There's a lot of arguments, and I have my opinion about which it is, but that's not the point. Paul's not, or excuse me, Isaiah is not making a, 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 a chronological argument. He's making a theological argument. He is serving to contrast King Uzziah with King God. Uzziah, you might remember, was a mostly good king of the, t- of the two southern tribes of Judah. But ten years prior to his death, he walked into the tabernacle and offered an incense offering in disobedience and rebellion to the law. He was not a priest, had no right to go and to offer the incense offering that he was offering. He refused to leave when the priest came and confronted him. And so he was struck with leprosy, had leprosy for the next 10 years until he died. He was a good king who went bad. And things would go bad for the kingdom that he ruled as well. Chapter 5, verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done it? Why then, uh, why when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? It's my vineyard, God says. And the vineyard, his nation, his people should have produced good fruit and there was worthless fruit, worthless grapes. As the king went bad, so did the nation. But Isaiah is not just contrasting Uzziah's reign with God's reign. Notice he is also contrasting his end with God's end in the year of King Uzziah's death. He's dead or is dying. He is the only prophet to denote the time of an event by the death of the king rather than the year of the king's reign. All the other times when prophets indicate time, they refer to the kings and the events in the king's lineage by saying something like, in the 52nd year of Uzziah's reign, and then they tell the story. But Isaiah is marking it 
by Isaiah's death. The contrast here is not just between a king who has gone bad and the good king who is in heaven. The contrast is between a dead king and the living king. Between the one who is dead and dying and the one who is ever living. Uzziah is dead, but God lives. And what Isaiah wrote in his day is still true for us today as well, is it not? Fifty years from now, every king, every government official, every ruler will undoubtedly be in a grave. In 110 years, every soul that is on this earth, 7 billion plus, will be in a grave supplanted by another 7 or 8 or 10 billion more should the Lord tarry. But God, who was alive before the worlds came into existence, will still be alive. And for 10 trillion times, 10 trillion more generations, He will still be alive while all men will die. In 1966, Time magazine declared God dead, saying... God, the creator of the universe, principal deity of the world's Jews, ultimate reality of Christians, the most eminent of all divinities, died late yesterday during major surgery undertaken to correct a massive diminishing influence. End quote. I don't know who actually wrote that, but that was 1966, and undoubtedly the editors of that magazine are now dead. And God is alive. On his throne. When Uzziah died, Isaiah was graced to see a vision of God in all of his splendor. And what we need today is to see that same vision of God's splendor, God's glory, God's magnitude, God's life. God never had a beginning, He never had an end. He is dependent on no one and nothing. He is alive and He always will be. And brothers and sisters, that makes Him trustworthy. We can depend on Him. But more than just being alive, he is also authoritative. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. That word Lord is the word Adonai. It is not his covenant name for Israel. It is not Yahweh. It is the name Adonai, which means the Lord, the master, the sovereign, the owner. He is the king. In contrast to Uzziah, who was temporary and now a dead king, Adonai is the eternal sovereign. And not only is the eternal sovereign, but notice where Isaiah sees him. He says, I, see, I saw him sitting on a throne. Not only does he possess a sovereign name, but he sits enthroned eternally on a sovereign throne. And on that throne, he is both king and judge. Isaiah was allowed to peer back behind, as it were, the curtain of heaven. And there where no human dares to go on his own, Isaiah saw not the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle of heaven, but he saw a kingly throne, a vision that produces, says one writer, a raw edge of terror. He saw the authoritative one, and he is exercising his authority. He is lofty and exalted. God's throne is in the heavens high above, high and far beyond any other throne. And the train of his robe filled 
the temple. The train of the robe indicated the magnitude of the king's authority. The greater the length of the robe, the more powerful, the more authoritative, the vaster his wealth. And the train of God's robe fills the heavenly temple. It expands, as it were, into eternity far beyond all of creation. He is far above the universe and far above all humanity. For those who are tempted to think that God is inactive and ineffective, this is a reminder that God is not a small God in a small box in the back room of the temple. Even in the heavens, He cannot be contained for all of His glory and all of His authority. He is trustworthy for all things. He is trustworthy for our anxious thoughts. He is authoritative over all who would seek to do us harm. He is alive. He is authoritative. He is awesome. All of His being is worthy of our awe and reverence. As He saw Him there seated in that temple, He also noted, verse 2, that seraphim stood above Him. He is not alone at His throne. He is surrounded by seraphim. We don't know how many are there. There is obviously one. The inference from the... More than one. The inference is that there are probably many more than just two, though there are at least two. Supposition is, is that there were two rows of the seraphim surrounding the heavenly throne and the one row called out and the other responded to that other row in song and praise. Notice the description of these seraphim, these angels. They have six wings. With two, he covered his face. It is symbolic of the truth that no one can see God. And even angels in heaven, perfect in in righteousness, are reverent before God. They, They take no liberties with God. They understand that he is king, that he is sovereign, that he is eternal, that they are created And they do not presume to look on him. With two, he covered his feet, not because the feet are unholy. The feet couldn't be unholy if they are in heaven. But in recognition that even in their holiness and their submission to God, they are not worthy to stand in his presence. It it, it harkens back to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And with two, he flew. That is, the wings were used in constant and joyful service of God. They're always ready, always around him as obedient servants of God. As great, as perfect, as magnificent as the angels are, never marred by sin, they still revere their maker with great humility and service. God is alive, God is authoritative, God is awesome, and God is holy. We don't know much exactly about who these seraphim are. The word literally means something like burning ones, probably an allusion to the brightness that they carry. When you think seraphim, you think angels, don't think that cute, cuddly little thing that you keep in your curio cabinet. If you saw an angel in real life, you would fall down terror-stricken thinking you were about to die. They are not cuddly. They are not cute. They are powerful And they are there to carry a message about God. What is important about the angels is not what they look like or 
what they did, what is important about the angels, at least in this passage, is what they said. Again, it seems like they're in two lines. Verse 3, one called out to another. So one is on this side calling to the other, and the other responds back when the first finishes. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Of all the attributes of God, this is the only one that is declared in triplicate. None of the attributes of God is greater than any of the others. They are all infinite in extent, eternal in duration. None of them is any lesser than any of the others. None of them is greater than any of the others. None of God's attributes are things that he grows into, develops or matures to become more like And yet there seems to be something that is particularly unique about the holiness of God so that of all of His attributes, of all of His character, the one that the angels that are at the throne of God repeatedly declare is His holiness and they say it in triplicate. When God is declared to be holy, what what do the angels mean by that? They mean that He is set apart. He is distinct. He is wholly other. There is nothing that corresponds to Him. God's holiness is a separateness from everything unclean, profane, evil, and common. It is His absolute abhorrence, rejection of, and inability to be anything or do anything or see anything or or desire anything sinful. And conversely, it is also his moral perfection and absolute righteousness and complete purity. It is the absence of sin and it is the presence in all of its fullness of his righteousness. It's interesting that many things on earth are called holy. Many things are considered to be by God to be set apart to use distinctly for him. Holy ground, holy assemblies, holy Sabbaths, the holy nation Israel, the holy city Jerusalem, holy garments, holy promises, holy men, holy women, holy scriptures, holy hands, holy faith, even a holy kiss. I like that one. If there are classes of some of these that are separate and distinct and unique from others to be used for God in particular purposes, what are we to think about the holiness of God? If ground can be holy, if a kiss can be holy, how holy must God be in His righteousness? To say that God is holy is to say that He is devoted to Himself. There is no higher reality to which He must conform to be holy. God is not holy because He kept the law. The law is holy because God has declared it. It comes from Him. He is not made holy by it. Says John Piper, He is incomparable. His holiness is His utterly unique divine essence. It determines all that He is and does and is determined by no one. His holiness is what He is as God and no one else is or ever will be. Call it His majesty, His divinity, His greatness. His value is the pearl of great price. In the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder 
and awe. I, at the beginning of this year, crafted a Bible reading plan for myself. I thought there are a few books that I just want to spend a little bit longer time in this year. And so I'm following my own Bible reading plan this year. And one of the books I wanted to spend some time in was Isaiah. I finished about a week ago. And I'm just reading along in the book of Isaiah. And I was just stunned by Isaiah's perception of God as holy. Thirty times he calls him the Holy One. Thirty times. The first few times I missed it. And then it's like, well, there it is again. There it is again. There it is again. I mean, even, even a blind man can see it. Listen to what he says. One four. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from Him. The inference is, how could they? He's the Holy One. 519. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. 524. They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. 1017, and the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. 1020, now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck him, but will truly rely on the Lord, the holy one of Israel. 12.6, cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the holy one of Israel. 17.7, in that day man will have regard for his maker and his eye will look to the Holy One of Israel. 29.19, the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. 29.23, indeed they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Rebellious ones, it says in 30.11, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, Let us no more hear about the Holy One of Israel. We don't want Him. Get Him out of our lives. We don't want His holiness. The next verse, 3012. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word, 3015, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. 311, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel. 37.23, have you reproached and blasphemed against the Holy One of Israel? 40.25, to whom then will you liken me that I will be his equal, says the Holy One? 41.14, I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. But you rejoice in the Lord, verse 16, and you will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Verse 20, chapter 41 still, and that they may see and recognize that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. 43.3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 43.14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. 43.15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. 45.11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker. 47.4, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. 
48.17, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God. 49.7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. 54.5, Your husband is your Maker whose name is the Lord of hosts and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of the earth. 55.5 Behold, you will call a nation you do not know and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. 60 verse 9 And for the Holy One of Israel... Because he has glorified you. Verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who despised you will bow themselves at the, bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord. The Zion. Of the Holy One of Israel. Thirty times. He's the Holy One. He is the Holy One who is their Redeemer. He is the Holy One who is their Savior. He is the Holy One of the covenant people of Israel. He is the Holy One to whom they can flee. He is the Holy One to whom the nations of the world can go. You think Isaiah has been absolutely transfixed by this vision of the holiness of God? He cannot get it out of his head. This one who is holy is everything for us. And we are nothing without him. It's no wonder that not only is Isaiah transfixed by this, but the angels themselves. Isaiah chapter 6, the angels are at the throne of God singing holy, holy, holy. And you turn to the end of this entire book in Revelation chapter 4. And there are four living creatures, each of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. 750 years before the advent of Christ, they were at the throne declaring the holiness of God and into eternity future, those same angels will be declaring the same message of the holiness of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is not that it is not that we have understood the holiness of God, that we have moved on from it is because we become bored with it. And the angels are never bored. Our problem is not that we've overdone the holiness of God, that we have not overworked the holiness of God. We do not shudder at sin and we are not amazed and delighted at God's holiness. And it is because we have never understood it and never been transfixed by it. God is holy. And God is glorious. And the angels connect the holiness of God to the glory of God. End of verse 3. The whole earth is full of His glory. Everywhere anyone might look on the earth, it is a manifestation of God's glory. You look at the sky, God's glory. Pull out a microscope, 
Look at the molecules, God's glory. The raindrops, the sunshine, a smile, tears, birds, flavors of food, textures of food, aroma of food, budding flowers, a couple walking hand in hand down a side street or on the beach, and you're looking at the glory of God. Everywhere you look, you see God's glory. To say that the earth is full of the glory of God is to say that everyone, everywhere one looks, God is revealing Himself. That's what God's glory means. It's a revelation of Himself. Look at this world and see the one who is behind it. That's the manifestation of His glory. But to say that His glory is being revealed is not just to say that, that we see Him But God's glory is also an invitation to come to Him, to delight in Him, to be satisfied in Him. God's glory is not only the manifestation of who He is, but it is a delight in who He is. And creation serves to invite us to enjoy God as the end and the purpose of that creation. And the world rejects it. They did not honor Him as God, Romans 1.20 says, or give Him thanks. Even in our sin-cursed state, the earth and every living being in it gives evidence to God's reality. Look at the universe and you will see God. And based on the context of Isaiah 6, look at the universe and you will see reflections of Of God's holiness. The greatness of God. Is reflected not only in the earth. But in the simple declaration. Of who he is. That led verse 4. To the shaking. Of the foundations. The foundations of the thresholds. Trembled. At the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling. With smoke. God is here, and you best be afraid. So C.S. Lewis comments, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. Says another commentator, In our age, As in every age, people are longing for happiness, not realizing what they are looking for is holiness. And the holiness has been revealed to us in the God of heaven. Maybe another day I'll finish this sermon. We need to leave some time for some new member testimonies. Before we go away, turn to Isaiah 62. I wept when I read this 10 days ago. I'd been seeing this all through the book. The Holy One, 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 the Holy One. 
In the first five chapters of the book, it's just overwhelming the sin and the degradation of the people of Israel. They are condemned and righteously so. They're being warned. Isaiah in chapter 6 will pronounce a woe on himself, a lament on himself, a warning against judgment on himself. The first five chapters serve as that warning for the people of Israel. They're rebels against God. They hate God. They want nothing to do for with God. And God has revealed Himself in His holiness to them. And we've seen repeatedly in those readings, passages that I read earlier, how God invites the people to come to Him. Notice verse 10. But go, excuse me, go through. Go through the gates. Clear the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to you the end of the earth. The end is coming. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense is before him. He's coming. He will set up his kingdom. He's coming soon. Get ready. Verse 12. And they will call them. The holy people. The redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called. Sought out. A city. Not forsaken. Thirty times. He has said the Holy One of Israel. Thirty times he has talked about the holiness of God and nary a single reference to God's holy people. And now in chapter 62, for the first time in the book, he calls them his holy people. A holy people who have been sought out and not forsaken. That's the promise of Israel. That God will not forsake His people. And the one who is holy will make His people holy. And those of us who are on the other side of the cross and in Christ, He similarly makes holy. And our pursuit of holiness is not an attempt to merit favor. It is the overflow of our joy in the one who makes us his holy people. Father, we thank you for the richness of this truth and the satisfaction that we find in it. We who are unworthy, we who brought only our sin, have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. And through the power of the Spirit of God in us, 
being increasingly sanctified. What grace. Overwhelming grace. Who is worthy, we sang earlier? (laughs) Not me. Not us. But Christ is. We thank you for the one who is worthy to make us holy. The one who is worthy to keep us. The one who is worthy of our worship. Might we worship him and follow him in such a way that we are made holy like the one who is holy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.